this morning, as you turn to Matthew chapter 7, I'm going to read from Psalm 143, but we're going to be studying in Matthew 7. And so if you want to turn there, um, I'm going to read this psalm and we'll pray and, and uh, see how far I get because my emotions are quite high now, thanks to just the encouragement. It, it's incredible, isn't it, to see people that are going through such hardship, um, not just people like we talk about hearts going through what they're doing for, ch- for children, but then we see people in cancer situations like like Bob, that are um, just struggling so mighty physically, but have this amazing perspective on what life is all about, on why they're here and what God is doing in their lives. And do you notice that over all of these things, it was not about self. This was all about the glory of God, that our existence and our purpose for being here is to glorify God. And so I just want to encourage us this morning to be looking for ways to empty ourselves in the way that Jesus emptied himself for us, because that's where we show the true heart and the true character of Jesus is when we empty ourselves for the sake of others and for the sake of the glory of his name. So I'm going to begin our time by reading Psalm 143, verses 7 through 10. David writes this, answer me quickly, Lord, my spirit fails. Don't hide your face from me or I'll be like those going down to the pit. Let me experience your faithful love in the morning, for I trust in you. Reveal to me the way I should go, because I appeal to you. Rescue me from my enemies, Lord. I come to you for protection. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your gracious spirit lead me on level ground. Lord, we ask as we read those words this morning that your word would take hold of our hearts, that your transformative grace would move us. Lord, that as we study your word this morning, that it would draw us, Lord, not only to a place of humility before you, but Lord, that we would be in a place where we're willing to do whatever it is that you ask of us. Lord, not so that we can accomplish something for our own name's sake or so that we can prove our worth, but Lord, because we are responding in love to you as you have called us and commissioned us here in this life to live for so much more than ourselves. There is so much more to this life than our desires and our wants. Lord, the things that matter to us, they matter to you. But Lord, you're the one who should direct our steps. You're the one that needs to lead us on. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would humble us before you. And we ask in sincerity, show us, Lord, how we can honor you, how we can glorify your name. As we look to your word this morning, show us, God, how this conviction is inspirational. When you challenge us, that it draws us to you, Lord, that it transforms us into a stronger community, a stronger body, and a better representation and reflection, Jesus, of you. Mold us with your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we pick up in verse 21 this morning, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. And I think we need to bear in mind that Jesus has just spoken, as BJ taught last week, about the narrow gate. The narrow gate that human beings must enter through for salvation. There's a broad path we can take to enter judgment, but there's a narrow gate, a narrow path that leads to eternal life. And Jesus said it so clearly in John chapter 14, verses 6 through 7. We're familiar with these verses, and he was speaking to Thomas in this context. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus says there's only one way. 
And he says that that way is provided by himself. It's by the will of the Father and through the finished work of the Son that we've been filled with the Holy Spirit, church. It's by God's will and the work of Christ that is how we're filled with the Spirit. Let us never, ever forget that reality. The road is difficult. The gate is narrow. The result is eternal. It's difficult. It's narrow. But Christ laid the path himself with his own sacrifice. Amen? So Jesus taught us to guard against anyone who would teach anything else. He teaches us to guard against false prophets, to watch out for false teachers in the prior passage. And then beginning in verse 21, Jesus continues the theme of identifying, but he switches the focus from what is falsely taught by others to what is falsely professed by others. He's going to address false professors, not university teachers. He's going to talk about people who claim to belong to the Lord, who claim to be believers, but in fact, they're not. As Jesus will reveal to us, the heart is the subject matter yet again. And we've talked about this over and over again in Sermon on the Mount. Jesus cuts straight to the heart over and over again, getting to the real core of why we do what we do, who we worship, and how we know who we're worshiping. Even though it may appear on the surface that this is a matter of works or accomplishments, Jesus is going for the heart. It most certainly is not an issue of works because the works or accomplishments that we're going to read in this passage are things that, honestly, we would consider in most cases evidence of salvation. These are things that we would look at on the outside and go, oh, that person's got to be saved. Look at what they're doing. The warning comes for that attitude. It's more. It's deeper. It goes to the core. So the problem lies within the heart. So let's look deep within. Let's do this introspectively within ourselves. Let's look at the core of who we are as a church, as a ministry. And let's go to the word of God for instruction. Let's look at what Jesus said. Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. This is our text for this morning. Jesus continues his sermon. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. This is the word of the Lord. J.C. Ryle said this, The Lord Jesus winds up the Sermon on the Mount by a passage of heart-piercing application. He turns from false prophets to false professors, from unsound teachers to unsound hearers. This is convicting stuff. This is challenging stuff. Now, before we work ourselves up into a tizzy, hold on. Because I know so many people, and I've agreed with them, this is a scary passage of Scripture. This is a scary passage of Scripture to address, but if we address it honestly, there are real answers, there's a real understanding within it. Not everyone, when Jesus says that, means that some will say, Lord, Lord, and enter. Not everyone means that not everyone that says that is going to enter the kingdom, but there are some who will say it that will enter the kingdom, and we want to know how. We want to know how that works. For those of us who are in Christ and have read this text many times, or for those who are in Christ and are considering this verse carefully, maybe even for the first time, we want to know just how significant the conjunction is, but only. But only is huge in this text. In the very first verse, in verse 21, it's calling us to a transition. This is the only way. It's the continuation of the narrow path. 
It's the continuation of this idea that this is a narrow way. In fact, it's only one way. And how do we know that we are actually on that one pathway forward? Our understanding of verses 22 through 23, before we even look at those in depth, it hinges on our comprehension of verse 21, and especially those two words, but only. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, Jesus says, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. If that's the transition, then I need to know what the will of the Father is, right? If I want to be in heaven with God, if I recognize that I I want to spend eternity with him because I love him, what is this but only? What should our question be when we focus intently on Jesus' words with all our heart, not wanting to hear, depart from me? Those are words that shatter my mind. They shake my spirit. Can you imagine looking at Jesus and hearing him say, depart from me? That should make us all quiver. But rather, we want to hear the words of the master to the servant. When Jesus shared the parable of the talents with his disciples, Matthew 25, 23, that says, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. Those are the words that I want to hear. Well done. Not because I did a great job, because the one who saved me did a perfect job. Amen? We are sanctified and we are cleansed and we are justified by Jesus. It's his finished work. If the will of the Father is what must be done, the works that are being described in the text, we need to notice this about these things. The things that he points out in the text, they're good things. Prophecy, not a bad thing. Speaking the word of the Lord. Freedom from demonic possession in his name. That's a good thing. We want to see people freed from demonic possession and oppression. Miracles performed in his name. We love to see miracles performed. But the ultimate question still comes back to us. If people are going to accomplish these things and still hear the words depart from me, then what is the will of the Father? And it leads to another question. How can we do his will? What is the will of God? How can I be doing that will? What do I need to do? Entrance to the kingdom is the subject of verse 21. And beginning there, we have to remember some things about the kingdom. That's the subject of this verse, entering the kingdom. Now think about this. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 18, verses 2 through 5, when they wanted to know who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, they're like, who's number one? Remember, they argued about this often. They're not like us. They argued about petty things. Right? Who you think is going to be the best in the kingdom? Well, I don't know. I have the best hair. You know, like, and Peter's like, yeah, well, I'm the most outspoken. They're like, yeah, if that's what it comes down to, Peter, you win. Right? But think about this. In, in verses 2 through 5 of Matthew 18, Jesus, when they ask him, the disciples come and go, who's going to be the greatest? Who's number one in the kingdom of heaven? Next to you, of course. But who's going to be number one? Jesus called a small child and had him stand among them. Truly I tell you, he said, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, and people are like, a child? You know, confusion of Nicodemus washes over us, born again? You know, like, how do I, how do we accomplish this? Jesus says, therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes this child, Or a child like this in my name 
welcomes me. Entrance to the kingdom begins with humility. We begin with humility. We don't stop there, but we begin there. A childlike faith, a simplicity, a humble posture before God, because it's not based on even the best of the things that we can do. Again, verses 23 through 23 are some of the greatest spiritual accomplishments. They're the things that we look at and go, now that's a man of God, isn't it? That's a woman of God. Do you see the power that's happening through that person? Do you see what they're doing? Wow, that is some good fruit. You sure? I'm not saying that God's not doing it. But what's interesting about it is he's not using those things as defining characteristics of true believers. You want to know what it, what it takes to be into the kingdom of heaven? Jesus says humility like a child. It takes humility, recognition. Those works, they don't save. It's not based on the best things that we can do. We're saved by his grace through believing faith, and that requires humility and poverty of spirit. On our part, because we actually believe what Jesus said to open the Sermon on the Mount. Nine months ago, we started this study series in the Sermon on the Mount. You've been enduring me for nine months, and I thank you. <laughs> it's been amazing to study it myself. The Lord has wrecked me in the best way through this text. Through these chapters, he has absolutely broken me down to the ground. You guys have seen me in shambles so many times because what I'm studying every week is so difficult it's so heavy. It's amazing. It's, it's glorious. But it's weighty, and it challenges us every single week. And Jesus began this sermon with, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Who are poor in spirit? The humble, the contrite, the children. Those who have a childlike faith, those are the poor in spirit. Entrance to the kingdom requires humility. An impoverished and contrite heart entrance to the kingdom at that point when we recognize how broken we are if i am truly poor in spirit do you know what i recognize do you know what we recognize let's do this together do you know what we recognize together we can't get there we can't accomplish it i can't do it if i'm truly humble i recognize i can't do it i'm too broken so entrance to the kingdom then requires divine provision it requires a divine provision for us to be in the presence of God, to be right with God. Recognition of our poverty has a humbling effect. It doesn't save us from our predicament. It just brings us to the right posture, looking to God, looking to his salvation, looking to his ability. It's the realization of our reality. I've come to this place where I understand who I am now. How broken I am now. First Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He suffered so that he could bring you before the Father. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. He brings us to God. He awakens us in the Spirit, and he brings us to the Father, and he says, This one right here, he or she is mine. We're not righteous people. We were not righteous until he made us so. Until he made us that way. We had to have help. Our humility didn't give us keys to the kingdom. We weren't granted access to the mainframe because we realized we were rotten. 
That didn't give us access. Romans 5.2 says this, We have also obtained access through him, that's Jesus, by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. We have been granted access by faith because of what Jesus has done. That's the gospel. Our access isn't granted because we were deserving or because we would ever be deserving, but because the Father's overwhelming grace towards us. Look at Matthew seven twenty one again. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. So we ask the question again, what is the will of the Father? Is it that we would be trendsetters? Is it that we would be influencers? Traditionalists? Counterculturalists, put all the is, the isms, all those things aside. This is like hitting the reset button. All the other functions need to come back online, but sometimes you've got to drop it all the way back to zero and remember who we are. You've got to bring it all the way back to foundation again. That's exactly what we're doing. Remember who you are. Don't hear it in Mufasa's voice, just remember who you are. Remember who Christ has said you are. All my kids are like, remember. That's fantastic. I like to do it to them outside their bedrooms. Remember to clean your room. Right? I will haunt you someday. All the functions need to come back online, but for the right reasons. It's heart first, then action. It's always heart first. What is the will of the Father? I'm getting there. You're like, he's asked like six times and I'm throwing out little things like we're just building the case here. Remember when Jesus fed 5,000 men, probably many more women and children, but there were 5,000 men present. Shores of the Sea of Galilee, he feeds 5,000 with a boy's lunch, five loaves, two fish. The disciples are like, how are we going to feed this many? And Jesus is like, what do you got? Like five loaves, two fish. This isn't getting us anywhere. And he's like, shh. You better get some baskets down at the grocery store because you're going to need them, right? Jesus works a miracle. He feeds 5,000 men, probably many more people than that. Do you know what people were looking for the very next day? More free lunch. They're just like us, aren't they? You go somewhere, it's like, free lunch. You're like, oh, you get it. You eat it. Do you know what happens the next day? You want more free lunch. So they come looking for Jesus again in John chapter 6. And in John 6, 26 through 29, we read this. Jesus answered, truly, I tell you, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. You want more free lunch. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. Yes! Isn't that great? God's seal of approval is on Jesus. And he's like, stop looking and laboring for things that don't last. And they just ask him, what do we need to do to get some more free lunch? They're still on the wrong thought process. They're like, well, what, what kind of work do we need to do then so that you'll feed us again? And Jesus said this, this is the key. This is the point. This is the but only. This is the will of God. This is the work of God that you believe in the one he has sent. Entrance to the kingdom is not ratified by the works. It is evidenced by the works. 
Jesus is the entry. He is the narrow gate. He is the one that we enter into heaven because of. My sin has been cleansed by him, not by myself. Church, I know we know this and we hear this a lot, but do we get it? Is it part of the core of who we are? This is the work of God that you believe in the one he has sent. The Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16. Remember Paul and Silas singing in the jail and it starts shaking and the doors open and all the shackles break free and the jailer's like, that's it. It's done for me. Not going home for breakfast tomorrow. He's getting ready to fall on his sword and Paul says, stop, everyone's still here. And he runs into the cell. The jailer called for lights, Acts 16, 29. He rushed in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He escorted them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? This is the but only. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. You must believe in Jesus. You have to place your faith in Jesus. This is the work of God. This is the will of God that you believe in the Lord Jesus, the one whom the Father has sent. And on that day, so many people will come and they will boast of the things that they were able to do. And here in Matthew 7, verses 22 through 23, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, do many miracles in your name, and I'll announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Do you ever think about that? These powerful works that these people were doing. This is free. It's not in the notes. I'm just thinking about it. These people did these amazing works, right? These amazing things that we would call works of God. And he called them lawbreakers. They were still sinners condemned. They were still condemned by sin. Christ had not cleansed them from their sin. They had broken the law. It's just like the rich young ruler. What do I need to do, he says, to be saved? And Jesus said, you know the commandments. And he goes, yeah, I've kept them all. And Jesus looked at him and it says loved him and said, go sell everything you have. Why? Because he was lying. He, he was a sinner just like everyone else. He had failed just like everybody else. Jesus just called out the most notable like idolatry problem that he had you love your stuff you love your possessions more than you love me when we think about people who do these powerful works and i'll I'll get into that just a bit before we close but when you think about people that do these these amazing works and, and we see those as these signs that that this is a person who is truly in league or, or you you know one with god just the power flowing through him surely he's has the most amazing prayer life too RVG Tasker said it is not only false teachers who make the narrow way difficult to find and still harder to tread. It's not just the false teachers. A man may also be grievously self-deceived. We could be fooling ourselves. Makes a lot of sense why all throughout scripture and especially I just think of Paul talking to the Corinthian church when he says examine yourself. Know what you believe. Know in whom you have trusted. It's, it's scary to read a verse like this because it puts us all up before the Lord and makes us examine our hearts, our motives, what we do, why we do it, and where that's stemming from. And I emphasized it when I read it, but I want to point it out one more time. Notice the beginning of verse 22. Many, many are impressive. 
the things they're doing are the things that we would be wowed by. It's many, it's not a few. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we did these things. Therefore, we have what? Earned your way in. You have worked your way into salvation now. The most important thing is missing. And the part that's missing is something that we would miss, save the warning of Scripture. Because we're taken in by the qualities they exude, aren't we? We're taken in by those things. They impress us. We love the show. We love the big spectacle. We love those types of things. But these people have been grossly self-deceived. Could we be so blinded by our own religiosity that we have either never had or have forsaken true relationship? That's a question for us individually. Could we be so religious that we actually have forsaken relationship and communion with God. In fact, for so many of us, and I speak just for the few or the, the however many, I don't want to say few, for however many here who have grown up in the church, that church is just routine. It's just what we do. We didn't have to be told when we walked in here because we're so used to it that there's going to be some songs and there's going to be some prayer and there's going to be some scripture reading. There's going to be a guy who talks too long. And then there's going to, you know, there's there's all of these things that we expect. Right. How many of us, when we woke up this morning, deeply and intimately longed for a connection with Jesus today? I need to be in the body. I need to be in this community, and I need to hear Jesus speak. I long for that loving connection between Christ and me. I'm hungry for it. I feel famished. I feel dry. I feel parched, and I need to come. I need to be here with Jesus. Or was it, if I don't get out of bed, mom's going to come in here. She's already called me twice, and we all know what the third time means, right? And we got that built into us as adults the adults are like yeah listen to the preacher you know we do the same thing we're doing it in our heads if i don't get up mom's gonna you know i'm, I'm still thinking that way <laughs> i just my wife get up you have to teach today i don't want to not worthy of this stuff and if i get up here in front of you guys i'll be a hypocrite if i haven't addressed the many will I'll be a complete hypocrite if I got up here and shared with you guys this morning, not having stared at this and prayed and said, like one of the disciples sitting at the table, Lord, is that me? Right? Do you realize how frightening it was for the disciples when Jesus said, one of you sitting here are going to betray me? And each of them was like, is it me? You would think you'd know. Right? You would think that's something you already know. You know, Judas had to just go, like completely flushed. But all of them, they didn't suspect him. They suspected themselves. Is it me? It's Peter, isn't it? You guys, we, we, have, this, we have this ability to so grossly self-deceive ourselves. We actually work ourselves into blindness we become desensitized because we get so used to it. And here's the thing. I aim to make people, and I've said this from the beginning of this ministry. I said it in my former church as I was growing and learning. I used to say it all the time. I aim to make you uncomfortable. 
We have to be uncomfortable with complacency. We need to be uncomfortable with routine, with tradition. We need to look at it over and over and over again, not because it's bad intrinsically in itself, but because we recognize that we can grossly self-deceive ourselves. We can, we can lull ourselves to sleep when it comes to being spiritually awake. And we can't let that happen. We can't waste time here. We don't have much. We're like grass. We're like that vapor as the days get colder that you go out and you go, <gasps> and you see it just disappear. That's us. That's our life. We don't have a lot of time. And this community needs us. This community needs to look to the church and say, where is hope? Where is salvation? We're lost. We don't know what to do. We cannot get caught up in seeking to be people that have all of these works that we produce that speak to something that's not authentic. We cannot become a people that are not authentic of heart that produce good works naturally. The good works should flow, but it's like fruit production. That's why Jesus uses that picture. And he says, if you abide in me, you will produce much fruit. Abiding in the Lord, you don't strain, you don't grunt, you don't shove fruit out. It's natural production. And it's interesting because uh, Pastor Sky Jatani said this, throughout the Bible, God's will is identified far more often with acts of compassion, mercy, and love than with impressive displays of power. False Christianity always inverts this by preferring spectacular works over humble obedience and sacrificial love. And I've said this before. I don't know for sure, but I expect the people who had the most impact for the name of Christ, the most glory that's been brought to the kingdom has been brought to him by those that we don't know. It's being done in private like Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 6. He says, don't be like the scribes and the Pharisees. They pray on the street corners and in the synagogues to be noticed by people. He's like, they get their reward. He says, but when you pray, go into your private room. Do things quietly for others. Sacrificial love, humble obedience. These are the things that Christ is honored through. It brings up one final question as we think about this text. And, and I don't know if your mind goes there, but my mind goes there naturally. How are these people able to do these things? Does that baffle you a bit? How do they prophesy? How do they cast out demons? How are they working miracles if they don't have a relationship with Jesus? I'm not saying Jesus is wrong. I, that's where my brain goes. How is that happening? I think there's an amazing perspective on that in Numbers chapter 20. It's not a perfect picture, but I think it helps us a lot. In Numbers 20... The people of Israel, the nation of Israel, is still wandering. They've come out of Egypt. They're still wandering in the desert. And they're in this place where, I mean, they almost never are where they're complaining. And um, tons of sarcasm. And so, you know, what's fascinating about it is, is that's us. That's totally us. We were fine until COVID. Then we all turned into colossal complainers together. And people have told me this before. They're like, I just, it's just so sad. It's so sad to see what COVID caused. I was like, caused was already there. It was already inside of us. COVID brought it out. 
The situations around us, the circumstances around us, they brought out what was going on inside of people's hearts already. We just get to see it now in all its glory. So the children of Israel are starting to complain. Why? No water. They have no water. They're in the desert and they're upset. They're like, we're going to die. It'd be better if we died in Egypt or it's better. And it's funny because as the children of Israel go on and on about this, you notice as you read the Old Testament scriptures, they're like, it was so much better in Egypt. Oh, we had all the food to eat. It was like, you were slaves. You were getting beaten. You were, you were being mistreated and abused. And now that you're out here and you're having to rely on God, that's better? Man, they're so like us. The Lord spoke to Moses. Take the staff and assemble the community. This is Numbers 20, verse 7. You and your brother Aaron are to speak to the rock. Notice this. Speak to the rock while they watch, and it will yield its water. You will bring out water for them from the rock and provide drink for the community and their livestock. That's a pretty cool miracle, right? How specific was he? What did he say? How is the water supposed to come from the rock? It's up there. You can look. Speak. So Moses took the staff and got into his car and got on the freeway. (laughs) Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence. That's not my version either. The Lord's presence, just as he had commanded him. Moses and Aaron summoned the assembly in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring water out of this rock for you? Then Moses raised his hand and struck. See that? struck the rock twice with his staff so that abundant water gushed out and the community and their livestock drank. What did God tell him to do? And he did. And twice, right? Moses didn't obey. Water still came out of the rock. Why? God says this, because you did not trust me, to demonstrate my holiness in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this assembly into the land I have given them. Moses didn't enter the the promised land because of this incident. Did God take it seriously? I think so. But God still watered the people. God still gave water to the people even though Moses disobeyed. Now the situation here that we're looking at Matthew 7 differs because it differs the people who enter and are trying to get into the kingdom of heaven are saying, Lord, Lord, and he says, I never knew you. But the situations are similar in that in disobedience, Moses was still able to provide water for the people through the act and the kindness and the graciousness and the generosity and the goodness and the mercy of God. Isn't it interesting how often like, well, if I did it wrongly, then why did it work? Because God's goodness supersedes your goofiness. Your brokenness, your sin, it supersedes it. He still blesses people. And just because God is blessing people around us doesn't mean that we therefore are doing everything that he wants. God is being good. We still have to stay introspective and make sure that my heart is submitted to him. You can never sit back, pull your hands off the wheel, and hit cruise control. You couldn't in my generation. I guess with some of these new vehicles you can. But, like, it doesn't work in the kingdom of God. It doesn't work as people here. And by kingdom of God, I mean right here and now. Christ in us, the hope of glory, what we're doing as the church. Moses and Aaron didn't obey God. And water still came out. Sometimes God's wor- God works in spite of us rather than because of us. If 
God did amazing miracles only through people who are super submitted to him, then we better tear out all the pages about Samson. Because God was working in spite of Samson and doing amazing things for his people. Samson was a knucklehead. He wasn't doing anything right. We definitely don't want to be like Samson. I had a young guy once be like, I just want to be like Samson. I was like, please don't ever say that. You don't want to be like Samson. Do you know what Samson shows you an example of? How not to be a man. And Jesus shows you how to be a man. Jesus shows us how to be a human being. And how did Jesus do the will of the Father? Prayer. Kindness. Firm. Conviction. All of these things. We must not confuse being used by God with belonging to God. It's essential. Worship team, can you guys come on up? As they come up, I want to encourage you, please don't be distracted. Just just listen for a, a bit longer. The world doesn't need more people who are religious. The world doesn't need more people who show up because they think they have to. The world needs to see a people, a church, who do the will of the Father by believing in the one whom he has sent. When we're filled with him, when we're empowered to love one another in the way that he loves us, that's where spirit-empowered community, church, outreach, mission, that's where all of it comes from. It's not that we don't work. It's that we recognize it is him who is in us, willing and working through us to do his good pleasure, and that we are his workmanship, according to Ephesians 2.10. Maybe he'll use us to work miracles like the apostles, but that's not the defining mark of a believer. Maybe he'll use us to cast out demons, but that's not the defining mark of a believer. Maybe we'll speak the word of God, but we could do that just by reading a verse and not believing it ourselves. He could still accomplish something through that because he is good. Our proof of relationship with Christ, if we really want to know what identifies us as belonging to him, is very simple and yet more complicated in the same breath. It's John thirteen thirty five. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's not through all these other things that God can use to bring glory to his name. He said the identifying characteristic for every single one of us is our love for each other. How much we love each other. They won't know we're his disciples by so many of the things that we desire to be or to have. It's love that identifies us. Love will motivate us to work. Love won't allow us to be idle. Love will motivate us to do the things of God. It doesn't make us his. It's the outpouring of who he is coming from within without. Does that make sense? When I work, when I do things, that's his love pouring out of my life. That's not me trying to figure out how to get it in. As pastors, a lot of times we'll remind each other. There's, there's a group of us that meets locally regularly, and we'll remind each other, your ministry is not what makes you close to God. Your ministry comes from your closeness with God. If I am close to the Lord, that begets ministry. But being in ministry, will not be like, I just really want to get close to the Lord, so I think I'm going to get into ministry. Bad idea. That's a bad idea. Ministry flows from that relationship. It's not created by it. Our works don't motivate love. And without love, we're not his. 
Without love, we are not his. You're like, that's harsh. Well, 1 John 4, 7 and 8 says this, Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God, you can say with me, God is love. That's how we know that we know him. His love in us. And without this love, all our efforts are a waste. Don't believe me? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the very beginning of the love chapter, as we would call it, reads this way in verses 1 through 3. If I speak human or angelic tongues but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clinging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body in order to boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. May our church, may our community, our fellowship be defined and recognized as a community where people are loved and cared for. Amen? May that be the characteristic that defines us, that people see us as, that people, when they walk in, they experience. Because that's how they're going to know that the work of God is happening in our lives is because we love each other. We look after each other. We provide for each other's needs. There's nothing left to be said, I don't think, outside of this. I want to pray that we would be filled with the spirit and filled with the love of God for each other, that we would look after one another. We would care for each other through all of the things that we're going to go through as a church, through all of the stuff that we'll see in this community, that the Lord would mold us into his image in this way, that we would be an exemplification, an example of his love for each other. Father, it's our prayer this morning. It's our desire. Jesus, it's you in us, and you are the hope of glory. We don't have answers Outside of you are the answer. We come to you for everything. As, as the, the hymn says, naked we come to you for dress. And Lord, we recognize that without you, we are so isolated and orphaned. But you, God, you saw our state and you sent Jesus and you have brought us into a family. You have called us sons and daughters together in your son. And Lord, that love that you have given to us, would you fill us from within for each other? Lord, whatever you choose to do, you can work miracles. Lord, we can speak your word. Lord, we can cast out demons from people who are in bondage. Lord, if you choose to do that, great. We, we want to see your kingdom expand. We want, we want to see you glorified. But Lord, we know this. You have called us. We've been called to you. We're your sons and daughters, and we need to be filled with your love. For each other in this room, for the people sitting next to us, for the families behind us, for every person in this room, in Christ, we are to love one another, to bear with each other to walk alongside each other. Begin that work here and then take us out across the street to the community. Show us how to love 
our neighbors. It's interesting. We have an easier time loving people on the other side of the world that we don't have to deal with. But Lord, it's really difficult to love our neighbor. It's so close. The proximity is right there. Jesus, you told us to love our enemies. Show us how to live like you. Work in us, Lord, as we worship, we ask in your name.